And good morning. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Now, do you find yourself having to turn the radio up so that you can hear what's going on? Do you find yourself turning the TV up and having trouble following conversation in pubs and places like that where the noise gets in the way of your hearing? Well, maybe your hearing isn't as good as it used to be, or maybe even you have serious hearing loss. Well, there are a group of people who now have cochlear implants, which is fantastic Australian technology. And last week I met with Professor Kate Gefeller visiting from the United States, and she's doing research on how cochlear implant recipients can manage listening to music. Do they still get enjoyment from listening to music? And a special hello to my friends from... Better Hearing Australia and a bit more of a plug for them before we go. So here's Kate Gefeller. And Kate Gefeller, you've come here to Australia to talk about music and how people with cochlear implants can cope and do better with music. Uh, what, what got you motivated? What brought you into this field of music for cochlear implant recipients? Okay. I have been um, a musician most of my life. Um, I was a music major. I play a number of instruments, but I've also always been interested in science and healthcare. So um, one thing led to the next, and um, I got into the field of music therapy, and that's basically um, a way in which you use music to help people with a variety of different healthcare needs. Some music therapists, for example, work with older adults with dementia. Some may work with children with autism. Well, it turns out my specialization is people who have hearing losses. Uh, many years ago, I worked with people who used hearing aids, and um, so I would use the rhythmic component of music um, and the tactile elements of music to help children who had very severe hearing losses to get some sense of sound. And I would use um, various elements of music to also help with things like speech and language development. So one day, I pick up the phone, and it's somebody asking me, um, well, they, they said, uh, we understand you've worked with deaf people using music. I said, yep, right. Would you consider um, coming to talk with us about music and cochlear implants? And my first thought was, what is a cochlear implant? Actually, back then, the cochlear implant was just kind of getting started. And as you know, Australia is a major center for the development of the cochlear implant. Well, in the United States, we were just getting started. Nobody was talking about music because speech was, of course, the most important thing. Helping people who had severe to profound deafness to be able to communicate once again. And that is a very important goal. Over time, as people started to get better and better with their speech, cochlear implant recipients were saying, well, that's great, but now I'd also like to have a little music because that's important to me as well. So um, over time, I gradually chipped away at some of the questions about how cochlear implant recipients perceive rhythm, pitch, timbre, or what the different quality of sound is of instruments, how they do with listening to different complex forms of music, such as the music you'd hear on the radio. Um, I've been very interested in what kind of things help cochlear implant recipients to enjoy it more. And I've also developed some training programs that people can use to chip away at 
uh, some of the elements of music to make it a little clearer. Over time, I've worked with really young children, so they use music for playtime, but we always work on speech and language goals at the same time. And I also work with older, um, with mature adults who are trying to get back what they used to have. So it's been quite an interesting journey. Yes, your, your, your motivation shines through. Now, there's something about music. It's not just about a bit of relaxation and having a glass of wine with some friends with music playing in the background. What, what do you think is about music that makes it such a, a vital thing to we humans? Uh, well, music has been a part of, as far as we know, every known culture since early, you know, preliterate society before his history because we see um, paintings on walls of musical instruments. We find musical instruments from ancient cultures. Music for as long as we uh, have records has been something we've used for most every important um, community event or cultural event. Just think about graduations, weddings, funerals, spiritual services, um, the Olympics, sporting events. People use music to bring them together. Um, they use it to express common goals. In the United States, if there's going to be any kind of political protest, there'll be a song to go with it. If people want to advertise a product and they want to convince you you want their product, there will be music. Music is not only associated with social cohesion, but it is also, and there's a lot of data to show this now, it is also something that is associated with change in mood, and it's also something that's organized in a way that our, our brain rather likes having things organized in a somewhat predictable fashion. Music has those repeating phrases, those repeating rhythms, and so in a sense, it's something that I think a lot of people like because our brain is um, well organized to hear that kind of thing. And it's something that we use to express our deepest emotions, sometimes when there are not proper words. Ah, yes, now you've used the word emotion, and a moment ago you also used the word science. Now, science could be seen by some as being something hard, clinical, cold things that people with test tubes and wires and lots of equipment do. But here we're talking about science as applied to humans in an, an emotional sense. Is that is that what you mean? Um, First of all, there's just the sheer uh, joy of having emotions. If you think about Star Trek and the one character on there who doesn't have emotions, that reminds us of what it would be like not to have that gift. Our emotions are things that, of course, bring us very sad days. And I mean, they can, we have times of loss, but we also have these wonderful high times as well. And so I think emotions are very adaptive for us as human beings. We can study it from a scientific standpoint, but we can also simply enjoy it as part of our everyday life. So I don't think we have to do just the science or just that. I, I think they can complement one another. So for some people, they don't need to know the science of it. They're just fine. But other people love to sort of understand the human condition in a more analytical way. Um, for me, I love both the just letting the music wash over me. I just love that feeling. But I also get such a kick out of understanding it in other ways as well. Do, do you see a clear boundary between speech and music, or are really they just similar things on different ends of a, of a similar spectrum? Well, you're asking a question that a lot of people have been interested in for a very long time, as you may know. Some people actually th think that music and speech came out of initially sort of one communicative stream and that music became the um, 
form through which people were showing more emotive forms. Just like, actually, if you hear, when people are very emotional, their speech takes on more um, dynamic range. It may have wider pitch excursions. When mothers talk to their children, it's, oh, baby. There's a very musical quality to it. So some people actually think that music and speech started out similarly and that for emotional expression, we kind of went toward music and for more, um, now you need to pick up the groceries. It went in the speech side of things. Uh, We now know that there are certain aspects of music and speech that are perceptually more similar and some that are a little bit more different. So, for example, the cochlear implant is designed to help people with speech. Um, Some of the aspects of speech that are not well transmitted through a cochlear implant would be things like tonal languages or the prosody of speech or the emotions that you hear in speech. But cochlear implants are really good for consonants and vowels. So it depends on what aspect of speech you're talking about. Yes, and, and some uh, languages, the Asian languages, are yes. highly dependent on yes. pitch, aren't they? Mandarin, Cantonese, Thai, some Africans' languages, yeah. And uh, sometimes I've done a lecture where I put up the word Y-E-S on the board, and I say I'd like people to explain what that word means, and I say yes, 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 yes. yes yeah. uh, so there's a lot communicated. Absolutely. Do do you see spin-offs for speech recognition from your work with uh, music and the cochlear implant? We definitely look at the relationships between those two. Um, We are hopeful that some of the music training uh, might actually have some value for helping implant recipients to pick up on things like vocal inflection, the emotion in speech, um, talker identification, who they're talking to. So there's some... um, Speculation and, and clinically, I find that some of the individuals I work with who have more music training um, tend to be pretty good implant users for speech too. So I, I think that's one of those things we're looking at now is the carryover. Well, thank you very much for your time, Kate. <laughs> and um, I've got to give you some coaching myself before you go. G'day. G'day. <laughs> G'day. Yeah, keep going. G'day. G'day. <laughs> Close. The Australian accent, I believe, is actually very hard, and very few Hollywood actors, if ever, seem to. I think we overdo the A part. We don't get the vowels quite right when we try to um, imitate. Yeah, we come out more cockney. cockney. Yeah, probably so. I probably make it too exaggerated. Yeah, we we clip the uh, the consonants or the you know got a moment. We don't say that in Australia. Right, right. Do you notice my accent, by the way, as we're talking? Um, you know, when I'm here for a while, I, it starts to kind of fade in the background, but some people are a little easier for me to understand than others, for sure. Oh, Kate, well, I hope your friends and <laughs> colleagues can still understand you. And we, when I get back and, uh, But a good part of our culture and a good part of our accents have rubbed off on you. Well, I tell you, I love the accent when I got here. I've been, this is my fifth time in um, uh, Australia, and... When I hear someone back in the States who has one of those accents, I go, oh, it brings back a lot of really nice memories because every time I've been here, I have really been impressed by the spirit and the um, collegiality, the friendliness of people here. You guys have a lot of wonderful things going on here, and um, that accent is a very nice sound for me. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Kate. And uh, the final word, good on you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And yes, Kate Gefella, what a treat it was to meet her. 
Now, you might think that the cochlear implant gives you hearing that's as good or similar to what you have with a normal set of ears. And you remember that show, well, maybe the older listeners amongst us will remember the show, The Bionic Man. And he was always stronger, meaner, faster, smarter. His vision was better than everybody's. But what does a cochlear implant really sound like? Well, I've got a couple of samples for you here, and the first one is of cochlear implant speech. What do you make of this? Yeah, so you get the idea. It's nothing like what you would hear with a normal set of ears. and uh, But still, it's a lot better than what it would be if you were profoundly deaf. And uh, the cochlear implant has really transformed the lives of those people who are, have received it. Now let's have a listen to see what a bit, or hear rather, what a bit of music would sound like with the cochlear implant. <laughs> Yes, uh, not quite the same, is it? But uh, still, uh, people with cochlear implants are able to uh, get some appreciation of music with the uh, with the help of people like Kate Gefeller and so on. And uh, it lot depends on the type of music that you are listening to as well. And the an analogy that I like to use is if you enjoy chocolate, but you suddenly couldn't taste chocolate anymore. Uh, could you enjoy dessert? Well, I guess it would depend on whether the dessert had chocolate in it. So after speaking to Kate Gefeller, I met uh, Pamela, who is a cochlear implant recipient, and I asked her to describe what it's like, or what happened to her. Yes, yes. So, so Pamela, can, or, or Pam, <laughs> can you describe the moment, please, when they first turned on your cochlear implant? Uh, yes, I can. It sounded like uh, static on a radio. Um, my audiologist, Anne Marie, who's here today, uh, said to me, uh, started talking to me, and then she said, My son was with me. She said to my son, Richard, talk to your mother. I'm going to leave the room and I'll be back in a few minutes. So Richard started talking to me about a film he had seen the night before. And, and were you able to follow what he was saying? Um, first of all it sounded like Donald Duck quacking. Uh, I could pick out a few words but uh, surprisingly enough I could hear a reasonable amount on that first day. Has it really transformed you to, to have the implant? Has it made a real difference to you day to day? I guess it's hard to relate that to before and after, but I now do realise I hear far better than I did before. I would never 
uh, wish to live without a cochlear implant. And, and has it been a lot of work? Was it a lot of work to adjust to it? Yes, it was. Because I live on my own, I didn't have anyone that I could practice with. So a friend of mine was very clever and suggested I listen to the radio when they read the Canberra Times for blind people. And I would have the Canberra Times in front of me and I would listen to it being read from 8 till 8.30 every morning. Uh, and gradually I could make some sense of what they were saying by following the printed word. Um, but the problem was they kept on changing from page to page and I couldn't hear the page number to begin with. Um, so I'd have to put my hearing aid on to hear the page number, try and find it, but soon I discovered that I was hearing it with, with just with my cochlear without my hearing aid quite well and that was how I really learnt to hear speech. Yes and that was Pamela and we might move from one type of snail to another. Confused? Well the cochlear is a snail shaped organ inside your head and we might have a quick conversation with my guest today Dr Maren McKinnon after this piece of music, a bit of happy music uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, a bit of... Do you remember this, Life of Brian? Do you know what they say? Some things in life are bad They can really make you mad Okay, and here on Fuzzy Logic we're talking cochlea, which is a kind of snail that lives in your head if that's pushing the language a little bit much and the cochlea is a snail shape think about the size of a pea it's lined with sensor cell it's got fluid inside it and the little lever system of the middle ear bones pump the fluid and the little hairs inside respond and uh, that's connected to the wiring in your brain that generates a, uh, a nervous signal and the cochlear implant in fact uh, is a little piece of metal with 22 electrodes on it and they push on it directly stimulates those sensor cells. There's actually about 13,000 of those sensor cells, so the poor 22 cells have to do the work of those 13 cells. And on top of that, the cochlea is filled with a saline fluid which conducts electricity, so it's not a precise connection of one place to another. And uh, Joining me in the studio I have Dr Merrin McKinnon who's from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science here at the ANU and she studied snails. How's that for a segue? And g'day Merrin, welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you Rod, very neatly done. <laughs> <laughs> now Merrin, you studied snails on the central coast of New South Wales. I did. What sort of snails? Uh, the snail that I really focused on was a limpet called Solana tremacerica. So it's quite common um, along the east coast of Australia. It's one of the, the white and brown, slightly flat uh, limpets that you see. You see them on a lot of rocky shores. And it's one of the things that like it suctions itself to the rock, does it? Yeah, well and truly, yes. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get them off the rock if you want to? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I like to describe uh, that period of time in my life um, as you know, moving into tidal snails with a paint scraper. And, and if you didn't get a limpet on that first go, if you didn't get the scraper underneath, you had to leave it. You had to wait about half an hour until it relaxed because as soon as they feel something starting to try and dislodge them, they bunker down and they're not moving for anybody. They're amazingly strong. I can remember as a kid trying to prise them off. I think I got cranky and smashed them. Anyway... <laughs> It's just suction, so like it's a little muscular foot. An incredibly it? muscular foot, yeah. And, and, it, and it's just, yeah, it's just stuck. Now, they, what do they eat? They tend to eat um, the, the slippery, well, we only really, we can't really see it very much, but the, the lichen that grows on the, locks, on the rocks, it's what makes the rocks so slippery sometimes when you're trying to walk on them. So it's actually like, um, yeah, a very, very small algae, and they have a tongue, which is almost for want of a better a better analogy like a cat's tongue so it's it's like a rasp so it's almost like they're, they're filing the algae off the rock and they'll move around and they'll eat this this algae but they'll always have what they call a home scar so they'll always come back to the same little location but they'll go out and they'll like a cow moving around a paddock they'll clear off some of the algae and then come back to where they like to they, hang out they return to the same spot they do really yeah do we have any sense of why they would do that i'm not sure i guess um, maybe they find a, a location which suits them. They know that there's lots of food around. Um, maybe it, it's a bit like you know, human real estate, position, position, position. <laughs> you find an area that you like that has everything that you need and you, you set up shop. Wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is amazing, the things. Now, somebody must have figured that out. Somebody's tracking an individual limpet to see, that. hey, where are you going to sleep tonight? And it goes back to the same spot. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed at what people will focus their scientific research on. And, uh, you know, it's just that, that innate curiosity of why do they do that? And, yeah, every little piece we know, it's another piece to the puzzle and understanding how everything works. Yes, I, I love these little weird byways. I was, I was writing, I'm writing a book on the science of sound and uh, I was doing a chapter on uh, earwax <laughs> and I was imagining this sort of party scene right and you say g'day my name oh who are you oh my name's Rod oh what do you do I <clears throat> I study ears oh what sort of ears uh earwax <laughs> it's either a conversation starter or stopper I think <laughs> uh, so okay so uh, the, the snails they, they're like a, a mob of cows they go out and they harvest this and so why why were you studying that what, what, what facet of it in particular <laughs> um, at the time I was interested because I would see a lot of um, family groups and because I grew up near the beach and near rocky coasts and I'd see people collecting snails and you know it's still it's still a little ecosystem so if you change one little part everything else is going to change as well so what i was actually looking at was finding out um, if you have areas with lots of limpets what does that population make up um, compared to an area with fewer limpets or no limpets at all so i was going just yeah moving poor unassuming limpets with a paint scraper <laughs> and counting what remained did, did, did you always have um and I a great interest in the in the detail. You just sort of observe the world and just think, why? What's going on here? What what's happening? Is it is that sort of what got you motivated to do this? Um, I don't know. I think uh, probably a fascination with everything to do with the beach and the ocean. Probably because I grew up near it as well, and was just always there and. I, even as a young kid, I used to like looking at all the, the rocky shores and finding out, um, you know, what was what was there, what's hiding in this crevice, what's growing, what's that. So it's that innate sense of curiosity. Yeah. Um, 
you so you're studying the grazing of the snails and then you're changing the dynamics of one population against another right mm -hmm. now that kind of reminds me of the Khaleesi virus because <laughs> the, the, now there is a connection here right when the Khaleesi virus was accidentally released from the island or wherever it was being they were researching mm -hmm. uh, it hit the rabbit population and then the rabbits went and then what happened the eagles used to eat mm -hmm. the wedge-tailed eagles used to eat a lot of rabbits and so then they'll go grazing for other sorts of dinner yep so is is that sort of thing that you what what did you find do you what was the sort of did you come to a conclusion about the about the dynamics yeah i found that um well based on you know this this one small imperfect study i think i did find this is also a long time ago, she said, with dawning realisation and horror, uh, <laughs> that um, yeah, areas that had fewer limpets tended to have greater sort of population diversity. So we had more, more different species of snails moving into that area, whereas in other areas that had um, you know, more limpets, they'd sort of tend to dominate and there'd be a few really tiny little species which would still be hanging around, like um, little black snails that were like uh, poppy seeds. Oh, um, yeah, another ones. Yes. I'm trying to count them in a one metre square area <laughs> without being washed off a rock face. That was fun. <laughs> but you're on the beach. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Usually-ish. Or, or in the lab. Uh, now, you were kind enough to write us an Ask Fuzzy column mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago for the Canberra Times Fairfax on the subject. Here comes a technical term. Oh, dear. The chi chirality, so the left-handedness or the right-handedness of a snail shell. Yes. Yeah. What's the story? Well, when snail shells are formed, um, they're sort of built up in layers. Um, I guess kind of like our fingernails in some ways too. You can you can sort of take layers off. But um, snail shells, they are built up in layers and they tend to be built in certain directions and there's a dominant direction um, in most species. So just like you might have uh, in a population of humans, the majority might be right-handed, there are still some left-handed individuals amongst us and it's the same with snails. Now, left-handed snails don't really get on so well with right-handed snails. They... Their um, after hours uh, entertainment is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's the, the unrequited love. It's just, <laughs> it's just physically and practically impossible. Yeah. So, can you, can you, can we, we're a bit more, it needs to be a bit more specific here. So, uh, left handed, right handed, so it just doesn't work, right? No, it just doesn't work. So, it's, you, you, you're trying to put two halves together when one half is actually backwards. So, it's like trying to plug in a, an electric socket upside down. It just won't won't work. <laughs> so it's a bit like um, antimatter and matter that, that, that no, actually I have a point here, <laughs> seriously. The, the world tends to go either one direction or the other and mm -hmm. there's a real disadvantage to being a left-handed snail in a right-handed population and it's a really bad idea to drive on the right-hand side of the road in Australia. Uh, yes, yes. And um, <laughs> uh, I think both, 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 both activities would have limited reproductive success. I think if you continue to drive on the wrong side of the road in Australia, then, yeah, you probably wouldn't be around for very oh, long. All right, yes, sorry. And, and Matt, yes, I lost the thought there. It went <laughs> the wrong way down the tube. Uh, matter, yep. uh, anti-matter. So if you were an anti-matter, if you were made merin of anti-matter here in mm -hmm. the studio, 
uh, we detonate not just yourself, but my, but myself and the whole studio because you can't have antimatter and matter come into contact. It's instant. So the word, the universe seems to be made of matter. Yes. Rather than antimatter. True. Yes. But this whole thing of left and right handedness is it sort of pervades the whole of nature, even in amino acids. Mm-hmm. that they tend to have a, I think it's a right hand, I can't remember, or a left hand. And if there are asteroids coming to Earth, like matter from outer space, and there are amino acids found on that have a left hand instead of a right hand, then that suggests that the, that life was independently uh, derived, it has an independent origin from life on Earth, and hmm. maybe there is life in outer space. How about that? Why not? <laughs> who, who would have thought? Talking from snails to the origin of life. Via matter and antimatter. Via <laughs> matter and antimatter here on Fuzzy Logic. I think we might hit a bit more music if we're really lucky. David Bowie on Fuzzy Logic. A bit of mellow music there from David Bowie here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. 
And my guest today, Dr. Merrin McKinnon from the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. Now, Merrin, I sent you an email and it was a bit of a test, but you passed with flying colours. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yes, well done. Now, if you were to go to our Facebook page and you see a link to a story that someone has concocted, shall we say, on the subject of the proliferation of cars. And can you describe it, Merrin? What, what did I send you, that story? It was basically a collection of um, aerial shots taken from various places around the world that showed just mile upon mile of parked cars, um, new cars, waiting to be, to be bought, essentially. And the, the whole premise was that um, car manufacturing companies, they are just continuing to build these cars, roll them off the lot, and then they're just sitting there and they're running out of space to store all of these vehicles. So they have to buy more land and they're, they're putting them on test tracks and disused airstrips and this and that and something else. So I have to confess, my initial response was, oh, good grief, this is terrible, because I have seen like those big car parks before full of the new cars. And I thought, hang on a minute. This really doesn't seem to make any sense. Like, if they're not selling any cars, how can they afford to buy all of this new land? And then why would they just keep doing what they're doing? Hang on a minute. <laughs> yes, yes, you pass, you pass with flying colours. And uh, you, what you described was my reaction as well. Because when I first saw that, my, my brother sent me this uh, link and I went, oh, jeepers, all <laughs> those cars. Oh, this is terrible. And then I went, uh, something doesn't quite gel here. So, Merrin, what what's going on in our minds, do you think? What, how would you classify our mode of thinking as we're analysing this story? I think this probably comes into sort of the rational thought or, um, you know, the critical thinking skills that, you know, you, you hear bandied about a lot, um, particularly by educators and development of curriculum and that kind of thing. Um, where we don't just sit here like baby birds waiting for information to be shoved unquestioningly down our throats. We actually have to stop sometimes, look at something and go, well, does that seem accurate or not? And really sort of start to unpack it a little bit. And I guess being not, not suspicious, but just not taking everything at face value. And the internet really is a great propagator of these things, right? Ah, oh, it's unbelievable. And I think you really should think really critically about what you see on the internet particularly as some of the most unbelievable things do actually turn out to be true um but you know like when you actually do see amazing pictures of people like i think it was the the former fattest man in the world was fi 560 something kilos and seeing a photo of that you sort of think no not possible but you know it, it is one of those you know actual valid verified things so you do need to actually sort of stop and go okay let's have a look at a few different sources here let's find out what's really correct and what's really not and because we do have all of this information so much stuff available and bombarding us every day it's very easy just to sort of go oh yeah okay yeah it sounds about right because we you know we're time poor we don't have you know as much thinking and reflecting space as we might like or need um, but I think we do have to force ourselves sometimes to not just sort of accept everything as it's presented. I'm, I'm just trying to swallow the notion of a person <laughs> who's 500 kilos yeah but, but um, no it's easy for us you know for you and I to sit here and say oh critical thinking mm. oh, well, we should all be thinking critically but uh, do, do we have a sense of what that actually means I think you've, you've given a hint in your answer there like you said, the first thing, or one of the first things you did was you went to another source. Mm -hmm. 
But do, do we, is there any way of, of defining what critical thinking actually means or what are the tools of critical thinking, do you, th do you think? Oh, there's probably multiple definitions of, of critical thinking, I dare say. Um, but the, the basic fundamental sort of principles of critical thinking are the ability to evaluate information and to evaluate sources and to take in, a, like to be able to actually even find those sources in the first place, but to find information and to look at it and bring it all together and then make a decision based on that information. It's really hard to say how that actually works. I mean, what are the, I mean, evidence, I think, is the, is the one that you've alluded to. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that A causes B and A is not just happens to occur with B for no, an unrelated reason, mm -hmm. uh, it's, I find it quite hard to say how it is that we know that is the true, but somehow we, we are able to do it. Um, I wish I had a better way of thinking. Do you have a, th a sense of what motivates people to propagate these, to generate and, and propagate these things? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Like before the show, we sort of bandied around a few theories. Um, I think the really cynical part of me thinks it's, you know, some other researcher or something going, I want to create a hoax. I want to see how far this spreads. I want to see, you know, what layers get added onto this. Or it could be simply just someone finding these photos and not knowing the context behind the photos and just having that immediate knee-jerk response of, oh, this is terrible, I, might, I want to do something about this. So it could actually come from um, a very well-meaning, well-intended place, but they just don't have that full picture. Or it could be someone who's deliberately just trying to start something and get 15 minutes of fame. People are frequently gullible. Are they? Yes. <laughs> I wonder whether there's an aspect of it, if it's a bit like a kind of graffiti in, in the sense that I want to be the one who says, I was responsible for generating this meme, mm -hmm. that's M-E-M-E, -E, this idea, this thing that went viral across the internet yeah. and everybody is now talking about the thing that I, and whether it's true or not is irrelevant. Mm. Is it a bit sort of like watching the Kardashians on the television or something? Is it, oh dear! Uh, oh no, we really have, we really have dropped to the bottom of something. <laughs> uh, yeah, but do, do you think people are, are motivated to, to, in the way I'm describing, that it's like propagating themselves? In, in, a, in a sort of sense, I don't. In some way, like for some people, yes, it might be that, and I think, particularly with the advent of social media, which you know, for for me as a researcher and as a science communicator, I think social media is a fabulous way of getting information out to to people and to creating that two way engagement between you know the the provider of the information and the intended audience. But I think there is the element for it to be picked up and abused as sort of a personal platform of someone trying to generate you know notoriety or you know some shameless self-promotion shameless self-promotion that's that's a, a great a great term now people want to propagate this sort of bunkum this mm -hmm. bollocks this nonsense at the same time they will uh, dismiss something that really matters mm -hmm. so i sent a really snarky reply to this and i will actually i was a bit more polite maybe but I said this is wrong mm. if we've got something to be worried about with cars shouldn't we be worried about peak oil we should be worried about you know a lot of things we, we're not going to have the the energy 
resources available to run these cars. Um, we don't. We need to actually. You know, start thinking beyond you know, the age of oil and all of these things. Like we, we need to start looking at what other energy sources we have, what our, what our alternatives are. And uh, But I think particularly here in Canberra, we are wedded to our cars. Oh, yes, yes. Canberra is the high citadel of the motor car. <laughs> we, we worship the cars. That's why we build big garages, to give them, keep them in the comfort they deserve. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, so that's a, that's, a, that's a really big, nasty problem. And we have another one, which is, of course, global warming, which mm-hmm. is real. We have population growth, which is out of control. And by the way, Maren, this is a bit of a tough question without notice, but would you like to have a guess as to the net number of additional people on the planet in the next hour one Ooh. hour no it's not really fair to ask that is it oh it'd have a lot of zeros after it um i, can, I remember seeing one of those counters in a museum or something one i think it'd be it'd be in the hundreds of thousands isn't it no it's like them eight eight thousand eight thousand well, there one you go. hour and even in Australia, I think it's about one. It's four hundred and seven thousand people in one year. That's four hundred and seven thousand bottoms that do what bottoms do. Four hundred and seven thousand mouths that expect to be fed uh, with cars, houses, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's a huge strain on a limited planet. And anyway, I'm starting to get on my soapbox here, <laughs> but I just want to play a quick sound bite here. Now, this is when I met Robin Williams uh, last year. And uh, here's what he has to say. Well, what about the quality of debate where science is, where science is intimately involved, such as climate change and peak oil and population growth and medical science and other forms of technology? How, what do you think about the quality of the debate you're seeing there? I think the quality of the debate is totally dire. I think it's tragic. In the first ever science show in August 1975... I completely forgotten this. One of the interviews was about climate change and warning that fossil fuel burning might affect the way that climate goes berserk more than if we had not exploited fossil fuels quite to such extent. You know, what I do quite straightforwardly is I go to the best scientists and find out what they have discovered and I report it. Simply that. I don't seek out someone who's going to be a stirrer. <laughs> I, I seek out the people who are publishing the best journals and found significant things that we can understand and which might be important. And most of them are saying we have a problem, and therefore I find it unfortunate when various political sides decide that they will ignore that problem or even distort it. And there are plenty of politicians, not least in the United States, again, who've said it's just a hoax, it's a nonsense, and I think that's most unfortunate. And, yes, Robin Williams there, who I met last year recording a Occam's Razor. I think we might break to a little track here on Fuzzy Logic. We are talking critical thinking and what really matters, things that we should be worried about and things we should not be worried about. Yes, we're doing the hand motions here to go with that roll it, roll it on fuzzy logic. And we are talking critical thinking here, maybe not critical uh, hand actions and critical singing of your host today. Our guest <laughs> is Dr. Marion McKinnon from the Centre for Public Awareness of Science. Now, I would have thought that, uh, in fact, I do know, in fact, he says 
that critical thinking and the the rigor required in thinking is something that is really important to yourself as a science communicator. Mary, how, how do you how do you approach this? Oh, it's really really vital, and I think um, probably my personal approach with with the students that I teach and also any of the science communication activities that I do. It's about getting people involved and hands-on with whatever the topic is that we're looking at, but making them actually, not just giving them the answer. I think that's very, very important to, to go through that process of, okay, here's all the information and here is our intended sort of destination or our intended outcome. How do we actually get there? How do I find this answer? And it's it's one. It's almost like that. You know, it's it's not the destination. It's the journey kind of things. It's, it's a bit like the difference between being served up a fine meal and, and cooking it yourself. Or, or, um, that's a, well, in that's some very, in some ways, yes. <laughs> that's a very crude analogy, but um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but, it's yeah. You you having a better understanding of the working behind it and what goes into that end result. I'm, I'm thinking. I came to the analogy because I was thinking it was being spoon fed. Yeah. Like. You said just during the music break then that people are just, they want nice, easy, digestible, quick answers. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily that easy to get to the truth. No. I mean, well, yeah, you can quite often, yes, it is very simple just to get the answer handed to you. But if you don't have the understanding that goes behind that answer, um, you've basically collected some useless information. Um, it's, It's a matter of... You're not always asked, just, oh, just tell me the answer. Sometimes, you know, like those old exam questions, show your working, show your complete working. If you've just skipped straight to, well, here's the end result, got no idea how I got there, um, then you you don't actually understand the concept. It's, um, you know, it's almost like uh, building a model of something. You know what it looks like at the, as the finished product, but it's not until you've done a whole jigsaw puzzle yourself or rebuilt your daughter's Lego for the 14th time that you actually understand all the little bits and how it all fits together. And you know, for me personally, I find that a lot more satisfying than just going, oh, well, that, that's that. So I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to know the unpacked information behind it. And but that's, it, yeah. It's actually quite hard work, isn't it? You've got to chew. You, you do. You've got to chew. <laughs> Um, now, you've, we're touching on a topic because we, we have our column in the Canberra Times and Fairfax and a few weeks ago I wrote one on how does a karate practitioner chop through a board or a tile or a brick? How do they do that? And the reason I wrote that is because I was with some pretty high calibre people uh, and we were having this dinner conversation about um, chi or you know energy or something and it mm-hmm. started off we were talking about health practitioners and I made the comment it says as soon as someone says energy you know like Reiki hearing you mm-hmm. know Reiki where they where they feel the energy yep. lines of force over your body mm-hmm. and they cure you and then the other bloke you know he says oh you know in in Taekwondo that I do you know I'm you know this guy seems to have all my and I'm going hang on we're talking physics here <laughs> And so it really surprised me that someone of of those sort of credentials resort to magic. Magic or or beliefs. And I think this is what we're we're finding, particularly about things to do like um, uh, with climate change or creationism versus evolution, um, political standpoints about... um, you know, gun control, for example, in the United States. People have... 
like our, our values and our beliefs very much identify who we are and our place in the world and if we come across something which doesn't sit well with those values and beliefs then we're either going to modify our values and beliefs or we're going to reject the bit that doesn't fit so and I think for most of us it's just well that's completely at odds with my worldview. Um, I reject that standpoint, uh, which is which is well and good. I mean, that's why we're all individuals. We're entitled to have our own opinion. But when we do get to something like climate change, when you know, there's a vast body of evidence uh. that you know there is something happening here, whether you're agreeing with the extent of it or whatever else, there is something. Do, do, do you think that uh, I've heard people say that when we're talking to a climate change denier, mm-hmm. which is the strong term, of course, uh, that there's no point in talking the science with them, you know, and the facts, that you have to use a system of logic that they understand. Is that uh, you have to pitch it at a level? I mean, that sounds patronising, but is that something it's, like that? Oh, it's complete. Like the, um, some of my colleagues at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science have written pieces about this very, very recently. And, and the, the fact is that people don't respond to facts. Um, I mean, how many people out there uh, still smoke? Yet we've all had the facts about the consequences of smoking rammed down our throats at every available opportunity. I don't think there's any debate out there anymore that smoking isn't necessarily the best thing for your health. And yet there are people who still choose to continue smoking, start smoking. It's, we need to start appealing to people's values and beliefs. And we're starting to see that in things like immunisation campaigns as well. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm picking all the key words now, aren't you, I? <laughs> yes, you think you, But that's an interesting point that you make, though, about uh, smoking. People know, there isn't a person on the planet who doesn't know that smoking is, is, is bad for us. Well, we've, we've run out of time, Merrin, and it's been uh, fantastic to talk to you. But since we were talking energy, now one of my regular readers to the uh, Canberra Times, he, he sent me a question, what is energy? And uh, which is actually quite a tough question, and, oh. and, and I, I had a look at the Wikipedia entry, and it <laughs> makes no sense at all. But I think I, I have an answer which will make sense, and it doesn't involve waving your arms across the patient trying to sense the lines of energy. <laughs> That's actually quite interesting uh, what energy is, mm. and. Uh, Professor Jeff Louis, who's a uh, one of a friend of Fuzzy Logic, has written us a story on uh, not a story, sorry, an answer as to why uh, a blow on the head uh, will give you make you unconscious, hmm. and that's in today's Canberra Times. Fabulous. Yeah, uh, great stuff. And that's it. Speaking of time, we have run out of time. Plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. Don't forget the Science Week coming up. We forgot to talk about National Science Week. Oh, dear. (laughs) All right, we better go. See you later.